welcome to One Thing About Money, the podcast where I ask a range of guests from different walks of life for their one thing that they think everyone should know about money, finance or the economy. My name is Leila Johnston, I live in Scotland and I write about technology and business for a living. And the music on this podcast is called Just a Waltz and is by Alina Smirnova. Listeners, thank you. This is the last episode of this first series of One Thing About Money, and I really appreciate you tuning in to the previous episodes. And if you haven't, if this is the first one you're listening to, I recommend going back because this episode beautifully sums up lots of the things that we've covered in the previous ones. The guest is James Ramirez. He's a CTO. He knows a lot about management. He knows loads about fintech and finance and cybersecurity. He's worked in the finance technology crossover space for most of his career. And he's just a really great guy. Um, I think he's super knowledgeable, really easy to talk to and listen to. And I really enjoyed having this conversation. So thank you for listening and allowing us to have this chat. James has some great insights around the reasons people behave the way they do around money. And I think that's something we could all do with reflecting on a bit more at the moment, especially with the current crisis. So I really hope you enjoy this one. And if you have enjoyed the series, do give us a rating on your chosen podcast platform. Hopefully I'll be back later in the year with another series. Thank you again for listening and supporting this show and all the fantastic guests who've been on it. James Ramirez. I am a technology leader, most recently uh, sort of CTO and director of engineering at a couple of startups. And I've spent my career in technology working for financial institutions and fintechs. And I guess that's that's what's kind of got me interested in how we think about finance, how we think about money, and what the implications are um, about some of the choices we make. What did you train as? What was your kind of early education? Um, so originally, um, I tried to be an aeronautical engineer um, and found the the degree I was on, whilst kind of excellent in terms of the, the teaching, was not where I wanted to be. And the, the bit that I enjoyed was the sort of programming side of things. So after a year uh, doing that degree, I transferred to computer science at the University of Sussex, which is a, a slightly interesting setup or was at the time. Um, so it was part of the School of Cognitive Sciences, which meant it was computer science, AI, linguistics, psychology, rather than being attached to a sort of traditional mathematics or electrical engineering kind of um, faculty. Um, and I think that sort of started getting me thinking about how we think and how we make decisions and, you know, what, what decisions are. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you've always kind of had an interest in the way people behave around money, not just the the sort of numbers side of it, it sounds like. Um Perhaps more broadly, the way people behave and the way people think. Um, so, you know, as as an impressionable young person, I would read sort of um, 
uh, things like the Hagakure or um, the Book of Five Rings um, or um, uh, The Prince uh, by Machiavelli. Um, and, and they're all about kind of how people think, um, and how people kind of, um, interact. And then what brought you to the world of finance from technology and kind of behavioral thinking? So when I graduated or or rather before I graduated, um, I did a placement with a large UK investment bank and I found that working in that environment was interesting because the sort of functional delivery the you know make the thing do the thing it needs to was often kind of complex only in the execution but what made it interesting in the context of uh, financial services was all of the other sort of operational requirements that went into building things in that space so security and reliability and performance and volume and scale and, and things like that and so that got me kind of into the world of finance and then when i got there i was you know working with a number of different business areas through through my career and you know, got close to the people who were perhaps making decisions about money, um, either, you know, in terms of um, making sure that the money was where it needed to be and, and what we as a business thought about the money or the instruments or the assets or, or whatever it was that was represented the money, that they were being kind of cared for in the right way. So that, that was sort of where I was working first. And then, you know, with people who are making decisions about what things to buy and sell and hold and, and so on. Your work seems to be around what you might call behavioural finance. And I think I've seen that come up maybe on your website and in a couple of places. Um, how would you define behavioural finance? So behavioral finance is an offshoot of sort of behavioral economics. Um, Behavioral economics sort of says that um, unlike in classical economics where everyone is assumed to be rational, in behavioral economics, people are assumed to be people and occasionally make um, irrational decisions. And irrational, you know, not necessarily in a bad way, but just in terms of influenced by things other than the most effective and utilitarian kind of decisions. So, you know, you might hold on to a stock because those stock you were given to you by a grant, or you might not sell a stock because your lizard brain is, you know, designed for hunting on the prairies and doesn't want to sell that stock at, or doesn't want you to think about your, that selling that stock um, whilst you might make a loss. So, Behavioral finance is the sort of subset of um, that thinking that's applied specifically to individual decisions, you know, about you know what to do with money or things that represent money. Super interesting, isn't it? Have you got any kind of reading recommendations that you've come across? Anything that you find really inspiring? There's actually a a quite big body of work around this um, in the sort of academic space. And uh, increasingly sort of in the more sort of popular science um, end of things as well. But I think the, probably the best place to start would be around sort of habits, because 
you know, systems thinking or, or kind of, you know, making something habitual is is often the easiest way to sort of counter um, biases, um, which is a big part of sort of behavioral um, finance is, is what are the biases that are affecting your, you know, the unconscious decisions that are affecting your choices rather than necessarily the conscious ones. Um, so a lot of material like Atomic Habits is is a good example, a good book to, to go for. I would say Thinking Fast and Slow um, is another one, or The Power of Habits. Um, so there, there's a, a large, large body of stuff when you're talking about habits. And I said habits is where we'd start in terms of understanding and changing your behavior in this space. Brilliant. Thank you. Have you noticed in yourself since you've been kind of getting more deep into this stuff, if you've spotted some of your own habits and kind of worked on them at all? I think I've kind of certainly been more self-aware and and as I think, as as I you know, as we're going to speak about today, um, I think I've tried to not to to, to move all the decision making either early or to be someone else's responsibility. What I've seen in the the startup I was working with, where we were analysing the behaviour of uh, professional investors um, who were looking after kind of other people's money, is that there's a tendency to make too many decisions uh, and you know these are from people who are experts um so you know i try to either outsource my decision making to experts or to to make decisions and not have them as something that i constantly have to make um but a single decision made early um, perhaps reassessed it's really interesting isn't it because it's it's one of those things we were talk, talking about before we started recording um it's such an emotional thing for people. It's really, really hard to give over trust when um, you feel like you want to, you need to hold all the information yourself. And, you, you know, it, like it's very difficult for people to go, all right, I'm just going to give my faith to, or oh, they're the opposite and they just go, I don't want to know anything. I'm just going <laughs> to go completely outsource all of this to, to an expert, even if it ends up costing me money in the end, um, because there's so much anxiety around it, I guess. Absolutely. And and different people have different degrees of anxiety around money and dif- different sort of um, pressures. Obviously, in, in today's economic climate, there's, uh, you know, a number of people whose choices around money are kind of like heat or eat or, um, you know, do I do a job that I want to do and that benefits people, um, but I need to use a food bank in order to do that job because of, of how we value um, people's contribution to society. For me, the way I kind of deal with that trust or that anxiety is um, I make the decisions that are based around risk. So my starting point is that I presume someone that I am effectively paying in some fashion, whether it's through fees or whether it's through you know their cut of what or something, but the, but that professional that I'm employing, I'm presuming that they know how to do their job. And, you know, that necessitates a certain amount of checking whether that professional has a good reputation for doing their job. Um, But once you get past that, then um, the the guardrails that you give to that professional um, and, you know, when I say professional, this could be an individual, this could be like an IFA, uh, independent financial advisor, or this could be um, an institution, um, depending on, you know, what kind of money you have to to make decisions around in this fashion 
and and so I, I will give them guardrails. So, in terms of you know selecting what what ISA to put um, some savings in, it might be a case of you know do I want a, a high risk ISA or a, a low risk ISA? The high risk ISA I will typically kind of promise that there is a you know an opportunity for for higher returns and an opportunity for much lower returns. The the low risk ISA will be kind of steady, but without sort of potential of, of too much upside. And and so, you know, by by working out kind of how much of, you know, the pot of money I have available to, to make decisions about, it goes in, in different sort of categories of risk. That that's the kind of choices I make rather than, you know, trying to, to micromanage it. You know, you wouldn't try to micromanage your car mechanic. Um, unless you had some skill as a car mechanic yourself. And, and I think the same sort of rule applies to um, making choices about money. Yeah, I, I wonder what it is that, I mean, I suppose it's obvious to say really, but it's it's almost like the most fundamental resource, isn't it, that we're kind of hardwired to protect our um you know our 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 sort of ability to survive, and you know it's just the one thing that we think, as you say, some people are choosing between heating and eating at the moment. But I think everybody has some kind of major like hardwiring to to hold on to their money a bit. You know, if I if I go back to thinking about you know that hunter on the prairie that I mentioned sort of earlier, you have a finite set of resources, and it used to be that. A lot of those resources were time or food. But now where you're not spending all of your time gathering food, you have more of a surface of time, but your resources that you have are much more concentrated. And your resources are concentrated into this thing called money because money is the thing that allows you access to everything else you need. There's there's a very appropriate theory that um, Terry Pratchett puts forward in one of his books called Sam Vimes' Theory of Boots. And it's it's that you know as a, as a poor person, quote unquote, you buy the cheapest possible boots because that's what you can afford. But those boots have to be replaced on a much higher frequency than a better quality set of boots. So as a rich person, you buy the best quality set of boots, but you replace them much, much less frequently. And so the poor person actually spends up ends up spending more money on boots because of the availability of the resource that is money at the time. And yeah, so that I think that's one of the reasons why we worry about money and perhaps also why we make sort of choices that aren't necessarily the best for us. Because, you know, if, if you're struggling to afford to go on holiday, you're not going to buy the most expensive pair of shoes. You're going to buy the kind of the cheaper pair of shoes because you're going to take some of that money that you might have spent on shoes and you're going to put that towards your holiday. You know, that's, that's a form of saving. But what you're doing is you're sort of borrowing against your future self. So, you know, there's, there's an implicit um, decision there that, that you're going to spend more money on boots. The, you know, theoretical rich person doesn't have to make that choice. They can make both of those choices, but there will be a, an equivalent choice that, that they need to make. Um, and it might be, you know, do, do I buy the fancy car? 
um, or do I buy the cheaper car? Um, and then the, the person at the next level up of richness doesn't have to make that choice, but they do have to make a choice about like, you know, do I buy the super yacht or, or do I put that off a year? And so we're making these kind of choices that, you know, regardless of how much actual money we have. And it's interesting to see that repeated. It's, it's really hard. It's surprisingly hard to guess what people's neuroses around money are going to be or how they feel. Because I'm um, just thinking about what's happened since the pandemic. Like nobody, nobody predicted the pandemic pop property boom. Everyone thought that was it was the end of the of the property market and everything was going to go um, downhill. And then loads and loads of people wanted to move house suddenly, and uh, the, the prices went astronomically uh, through the roof. You know, um, people were not seeing each other. Everyone was wearing masks, but things like sales of lipstick went through the roof. Like everyone was like, no, I just want to feel better. You know, you feed the the other sort of emotional side of it is that you use money to make yourself feel better immediately. You know, if things are really bad, it's like, I'm, I'm just going to use, you know, I'm going to, I am going to borrow off my future because I don't know anything about the future yet. Whereas I know that right now I'm feeling terrible. So I'm going to just kind of buy myself a new house or buy myself some lipstick or whatever. Um, and, and no one ever seems to see that coming. It's always a surprise when it happens. There was another aspect of some of those choices that, that I found interesting, which was um, about um, the the change in value. So the the housing boom may have been able to be predicted. Not sure, because what I observed was people who lived in central London moved like one zone out because they wanted somewhere that they could get an extra room to use as a home office, and people who live, lived that one zone out wanted to move two or three zones out because they wanted somewhere with a garden. Um, and so the things that they'd valued before in terms of things like convenience to commute or access to nightlife and theatre and things like that were no longer as important, whereas things like access to green spaces became more important for, for some people. And I think, you know, partly that depended on your experience in the pandemic. And, you know, similarly, like di- different jobs were you know had had their value attached to them change quite dramatically there's a an interesting article that i stumbled across looking at the the change in uh selling volumes of particular categories of goods on amazon because there's a large data set available there and and obviously there's you know pandemic related things that that went massively up like air purifiers um and then there's things that obviously went massively down like evening dresses um but there were also kind of as you said some of those sort of unpredictable winners like bread makers or you know hydroponic sets or you know whatever it was that people needed to guard against the the anxiety and the fear that you know they would have less access to food or or less access to um, the kind of bread that they were used to buying and, and things like that. Um, and, and yeah, looking at that from a, an economics perspective, there, there's some, some very interesting choices there. Um, there was also um, a statistic that I saw somewhere that said the number of new companies 
created in the UK hit a massive high during the pandemic. Wow, yeah. Partly because people couldn't do the same jobs they used Mm -hmm. to do, perhaps, and partly because there were a number of people that saw opportunities um, in terms of, you know, creating face masks or running delivery businesses, you know, delivering cocktails to your house or delivering online events so that you weren't stuck with the sort of family Zoom quiz uh, for the 19th weekend in a row. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, those, those kind of um, of things. And, and some of those, you know, seem to be opportunities that might only exist for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And some of those you know, seem to have turned into sort of longer-term, more viable businesses. So, James, what is your one thing that you think everybody will benefit from knowing or doing in the world of finance and money? In startups, there's this concept of a sort of minimum viable product, which is the smallest thing you can build to understand if you have a business. And I think there's there's probably a similar similar thing. And I guess this is you know this is the point of of your podcast. You know, mm-hmm. it, what are what are these small set of things that are the things you need to understand? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so. You know, mine is that that there is this smallest set of things that you need to understand, and the rest you can learn probably just in time. But that just in time is is an interesting itself concept when it comes to money, because the value of money is based on time. A hundred pounds today is worth more than a hundred pounds in a year or ten years or twenty years, um, partly because you can do things with it now. Um, so you can put it into savings or you could buy something with it or you could have an experience or, or you could, you know, avoid going into debt. And so, so I think, you know, the, the one thing about money for me is that there are a lot of choices that you want to make as early as possible. And those choices are probably around things like savings and pensions and, investments and and other things that early in your life you are more likely to find dull and less inclined to make choices about and we were speaking uh, just before about automatic enrollment in pensions which i think is a fabulous idea um i had the privilege of speaking to one of the chaps kind of heavily involved in it um a few years ago and it's it's this concept that if you if you take away the sort of friction of making a choice, then you know, and a choice is made for you, which you can opt out of or you can change or whatever. But but the default starting point is that there is a choice and that choice is good for you. Then um, that sets you up to start making good savings choices from the start of your career rather than from the point where you built up enough knowledge to understand that you should have made that choice 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, there's there's something about sort of capturing this 
idea when it's when it's not too late as well, isn't there? So we can do these yeah. podcasts for people who are grown-ups, but I'm now thinking, I should do a thing for young people that's somehow help well, them. There was a you know, flame bait article that basically said, um, all you hipsters, as long as you stop um, buying avocado on toast, you're going to afford to buy a house. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, so other than it being utterly ridiculous, it, it's also like, provably untrue um you know you you make choices about the resources you have you can make better choices or or worse choices but you can't make choices about resources you don't have but you know telling someone that doesn't have very much you know make better choices like doesn't fundamentally help them i think you know there is there is a segment of the population where not having to worry about those choices benefits them and you know not and doing so at a point where they those choices are made earlier for them like you know institutions policies Mm. are are set up to be by default good for people rather than by default like meh Mm. i guess is my point Mm. um you know the, the, the the thrust of what i've said is like Make better choices early and before you know about them. But if you don't know about them, you can't make that choice. It, it's other people that have to kind of mm. make better choices. Um, you know, perhaps dare I say it, less capitalistic choices. You know, make a choice that is good for your customer, and your customer will keep coming back because they can afford to come back. You know, if you make choices that are just good for your bottom line, then you know, obviously there are graduations of that but you know make make thoughtful choices that are good for other people as institutions and as businesses and so on because that's a decent human thing to do and and broadly this is about like you know behavioral finance it's about choices about money made by people not made by robots helping people to help other people i think is always a good idea and help and encouraging people to think of themselves as being bigger than themselves yeah, which is quite um, unfashionable. It's not. It's not really the way the world works at the moment. But I feel like it should. <laughs> no, there, there was there was a bit of a a movement towards it. I think a few years ago, and, and a resurgence of that during the pandemic, as we spoke about. Mm. But you know, just just being thoughtful, being kind, paying it forward. You know, mm. these are all good things to do, sort of institutionally. And and they're the kind of things that differentiate you at the moment. I mean, I'd love it to not be the case, but they're the things that differentiate you from, you know, your your nearest competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. and often don't cost you as a business in terms of resource or in terms of time, um, but but do kind of bring that. Um, unmeasurable kind of um benefit to to the person that you're engaging with as a business are there other things that you could you've sort of thought of specifically around this or is it more of a general idea of like just have some things in your pocket um I think it's 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 have some things in your pocket and and understand 
that there there is this concept of of the time value of money and and just learn enough about that to understand the other things that you need to know just enough about um and and to keep kind of your eye on on that so you know when you're just starting up um you know just coming out of university you you may the the one thing you need to know is that money now is worth money worth more than money in the future and so you know just making a choice to add another percentage point to your pension contributions is probably a really really positive thing to do when you're 22 24 whatever and that's probably the 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 only thing you need to understand about pensions at that point but making that choice and that in acting on that at that point will yield massive massive benefits and then you know later on you might make you know you got your first job under your belt you might want to make choices based on risk mm. and so you might go you know I'm, I'm 27 now um i can probably afford to have some of my pension contributions in a higher risk investment and some of them less or not like whatever your personal kind of appetite for risk is but you should have enough life experience to make choices about risk but again that that's probably you don't you don't need to necessarily understand like the assets that your investments is in maybe you do maybe you don't like depending on how deep you want to make those choices um you know they're probably the other sort of minimum viable stuff is you know what is my upside and my downside like what what is what could i lose you know the, mm. you're, you'll often see in small print you know never invest more than you can afford to lose but what does that actually mean mm, mm. Um, and, and what are the the ways in which you could lose this so you know crypto is or bitcoin or whatever you want to call it these days web3 is a different vehicle than equities or investing in an index fund or putting the money under your mattress. You know, they've all got risks as well as upsides and downsides. My, my sort of three sort of minimum viable things would be time value of money, make choices based on risk once you understand enough about risk and um, you know, understand enough about the things that you're investing in to understand what the risks are that you're making. Do you have? Do you personally have a place that you always go to find out more or to get um, tips about your finances? Are there any particular places you'd recommend? No, quite deliberately. Um, so, as someone that spent their career working in financial services and, and, and fintech. Um, my sort of default level of, of knowledge is different to my brother or, um, you know, one of my friends. Um, and so the, the articles or the, the material that I might look at would be different to theirs because mm. I've got a, a, a different sort of minimum viable level of knowledge. There are a number of sites that provide advice um, you know, money saving tips or investopedias or, or those mm-hmm. kind of places. But they're they're sometimes tricky to kind of if you don't have enough knowledge to to get into how they're explaining it, mm-hmm. um, then 
then they're tricky. So I would say, you know, be less British and talk with someone about it. Mm. Um, and, you know, if, or, or maybe try and explain your choices to someone and, and in doing so, like, you know, explain, explaining, teaching, etc., are good ways of learning as well as good ways of, help, of helping other people learn. That's so true. And I think being motivated to learn about it at all, which I, I think, I mean, I'm quite hopeful that the younger generation, if that's what we're talking about, at least partly, um, have have quite a good chance of actually doing better than my or your generation, which I'm sort of think is the same generation. <laughs> I feel like we, we sort of, um, in some ways, we were a bit it was a bit difficult for us because we didn't have the internet and we didn't have loads and loads of free information all the time about um, finance. The Now house prices are affordable. Uh, you know, the, the stock market's affordable. Um, it's increasingly becoming so, I should say. I know it's not, none of these things are affordable to lots of people. Um, and starter salaries are, I'm going to say, better than they were 20 years ago. So I think that things are, you know, there are, there is hope. I think if people are interested in learning, then they could do quite well. I, I think there is, there is definitely better access to learning um, mm-hmm. and better products uh, available to people like more human centric products. I think there's also a few more minefields. Okay. You know, there's, there's a larger set of um, younger businesses who have, different appetites for risk and sometimes that's really good so if you look at um the challenger banks for example um you know i was i went to uh, a technical uh, meetup um with one of the senior technicians from uh, one of the challenger banks and um they were talking about the conversations they have as regulators where it's going back to the fundamentals of, of regulation and risk um rather than the more traditional kind of high street banks who are in a large number of products serving a large number of different customers and at a scale where they're making decisions around security or risk or compliance or those kinds of things that are one size fits all because their organizations are, are too big to make smaller decisions. Um, so, you know, the challenger banks can be more nimble around some of that. Mm. There's a good example. Equally, there's a larger number of unregulated um, investments like um, blockchain and crypto and, and, and all those kinds of things where, you know, the recent news around um, another crypto company collapsing and mm. billions lost and low, no due diligence and people going to prison for fraud and, and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's not the first time and it's not going to be the last time, but you know, so there's, there's people who've, you know, bet everything on, on those kind of investments and who are going to be in, in much trickier straits. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I, I would agree with your sort of vision of hope and optimism, but I would say it's, it's like, I would say it's more that things are more extreme, both in terms of optimism and pessimism, um, or like hopes and, and threats. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so I think there there is a much stronger need for people to deliberately sort of self educate, um, mm-hmm. and because it's it's a much more complicated environment. 
yeah it's it, it is because everything's easier like it's easier to lose a lot of money it's, it's easier to, it's, <laughs> yes. you know, it's easier to sign up to things and it's easier to make mistakes and yeah the the other aspect of things that is interesting to me is everything is digital and mm. and that's a massive empowerment assuming you have access to the technology and the skills to use those tools um but it's also much more invisible so you know you have an app on your phone that you've you know got an account with and maybe put some money in and your phone gets stolen or lost or whatever can you recover your details do you even remember that you have that app and put some money there and, and so on um or you get hit by a bus you know does your partner know that you have 16 different bank accounts is there any way for them to find out you know paperless statements there's no pay, there's no kind of trail or evidence you know so how, how do they find out and you know there's this looming kind of crisis around digital assets and you know if someone doesn't have a any record of these kinds of things what happens to those assets yeah so so i think as a bigger threats bigger opportunities um overall i'm positive though (laughs) 